welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. As we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 8, as you do so, um, I would like to read for us a parallel account of our earlier scripture reading. Uh, This one originates from Matthew chapter 24, uh, but the setting and the subject remain the same as we've already observed in Luke chapter 21. Uh, Jesus had just told his disciples that the temple will be destroyed, uh, so the opening context remains the same. The uh, setting is also the identical as Jesus is speaking with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, which is just just uh, stone's throw outside of the eastern uh, gate of Jerusalem, uh, the Mount of Olives. So these passages contain complementary information about Jesus' final statements, his last evening with his disciples uh, before his crucifixion, during what is called the Olivet Discourse. Uh, In this record, you'll notice that Jesus includes the term tribulation. Let's read it. Matthew 24, uh, I'll read this for you. I asked you to turn to Acts 8. That's fine. Just listen. Beginning in verse 7, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Uh, At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Uh, Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations And then the end will come. So Jesus assures those who follow him uh, that we will face tribulation. Uh, Some, like Stephen, we just learned, tribulation unto death. And then continues by stating, uh, just a few verses later in verse 29, uh, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, uh, the Son of Man will come and he will send forth his angels to gather together his elect into the sky. So that gathering of the elect into the sky, of course, occurs after the tribulation of those days, says Christ. Uh, So I personally, this isn't a an issue of uh, of salvation, uh, but I personally believe from this passage and numerous others that I could uh, lead us to that the evidence is extremely strong for a post-tribulation return of Christ to to rapture His church up into. The sky. Uh, that term post tribulation uh, would ensure that uh, the Greek term tribulation, it's, it's thalipsis. Uh, it's a term that appears 45 times in Scripture in the New Testament. Uh, it describes a severe persecution which Christians have often endured. About 40 of those times it's used, it's used to describe Christians. And uh, 
It's a per- severe persecution Christian has, Christians have often endured and continue to experience throughout the current age in which we live. It would be then to us no surprise that in John 16, verse 33, Jesus taught his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, uh, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. And what had just happened to Stephen back in chapter 7, at the end of chapter 7, is just one experience of a Christian uh, enduring tribulation. His, as I said, was tribulation unto death. Um, Personally, I would also include what the 12 apostles previously endured during imprisonment, a a violent flogging uh, back in chapter 5. I would suggest that is also tribulation. Uh, So as we read together in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, uh, please note that the tribulation which Christ indicated his his disciples should expect had at this time already begun. Chapter 8 and verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, referring to Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentations over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them into prison." Wow. Just imagine. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8, we're given another of those uh, transitional passages. uh, Contains two crucial explanations uh, provided by Luke to us, the readers. Uh, As we move deeper into the book of Acts, uh, for number one, uh, this continues the the introduction to Saul, uh, who will eventually get saved and become an apostle named Paul. Uh, His conversion to Christianity is going to come in the next chapter. That'll be chapter 9. And this offers us a little more background to him so that we don't wonder in the next chapter, you know, where'd this Saul guy come from all of a sudden? Secondly, Verses 1 through 3 also explain how the, the many and many thousands of Christians who'd come to faith in Jerusalem during the first two years following Pentecost, how they became scattered out into the surrounding regions, and uh, as Jesus had assured would happen before his return, uh, the gospel would be preached to every tongue, tribe, and nation And it was due to a violent persecution that they were forced to flee their homes. The tribulation came right to their doors. 
And, and it moved from door to door under the direction of Saul, uh, who was deputized by the priests of the Sanhedrin uh, with, with an aim to crush our Lord's church. That was the, the purpose of this persecution. Now, I plan to keep it quite simple today uh, and allow the Word of God to just provide us with a little more insight about the persecutor, his name is Saul, and those who Saul persecuted. So, the persecutor and those who are persecuted. I'd suggest we just begin with Saul. You know, I'm not going to presume that everyone who is present with us today uh, knows who Saul is. Saul was a, a Hebrew, meaning means he was a descendant of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, who is a physical descendant, who was, he was ascending through the religious ranks. He's ascending in Israel. He's, he was proving himself to be a religious zealot. He himself was not a priest. He was not born of the tribe of Levi. He was a Benjamite, we find in other passages. Uh, so he wasn't a priest, but he belonged to a sect that was called Pharisees. That was a, a religious faction distinguished by their strict adherence to the Levitical laws those laws which were given to Israel through Moses at Sinai, and, and Saul took those laws very seriously. Very seriously. Uh, he was extremely well educated in Scripture and uh, had attained the, the highest of theological degrees in his day. Uh, and he defended those firmly held beliefs with it with a great fervor. He was very, very serious about his Bible as it consisted, at least at that time, uh, from Genesis all the way through Malachi. Saul studied the exact same scriptures as did Stephen, whom we watched violently murdered last Sunday in our previous text. They're studying the same book. Yet he and Stephen, they, they'd come to completely different conclusions from Scripture. It's also likely that these two men had known one another. Saul, like Stephen, he was also a Hellenistic Jew. That means he was born in or originated from a, a Greek-speaking nation. Uh, but Saul and Stephen had both been repatriated into Israel or resettled in Jerusalem. And in fact, we're going to find out later that Saul was originally born in a city named Tarsus. And that is a prominent city in a region of Cilicia. Say, well, why does that matter? Well, it was men like Saul himself uh, originating from this region of Cilicia, if you remember back in chapter 6 and verse 9, uh, who had helped to organize a local gathering, a local synagogue in Jerusalem called the Synagogue of the Free Men. Remember that? And it was these men from the Synagogue of the Free Men who had 
rose up to argue with Stephen about Christ and the scriptures. It is some of these same men from Cilicia uh, who Acts 6 verse 10 states, uh, they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. Now, we can't know this with certainty, but it is very possible, I would say perhaps even likely, that Saul was one of those men from Cilicia back in chapter 6 uh, who was a card-toting n- member of this synagogue of the free men, and, and one who had rose up to debate with Stephen himself. And if this is accurate, Saul, even with all of his intellectual brilliance, all of his theological credentials, uh, was one of the men who was bested by Stephen during those debates. Think about that. Saul, one of the highest educated men in Israel, educated under Gamaliel, we'll learn, uh, he may have been one of the men who was crossing theological swords with Stephen. And he was lost. That's Saul who was lost. And now if you're imagining yourself as Saul, just for a second, imagine yourself being Saul. What do you do once you've lost a theological duel? I think it's pretty obvious, of course. uh, You know, uh, you secretly induce men to slander your opponent. Publicly identify him as a blasphemer. Uh, drag him into court and charge him. Uh, And then, of course, you cast your vote for stoning to ensure that Stephen never rises up to argue with you again. And murdering one of your own brethren in Israel reveals just how far astray a corrupted understanding of Scripture can take you. Therefore, being well-educated and zealous for your theology, it doesn't automatically mean that your theological views of the Bible are right. I've listened to to many teachers and preachers, as you have over the years, who who make very confident assertions uh, concerning what they believe, and and they often come across uh, and sound very convincing in what they say. They say it from, or with at least a defense from Scripture. But what is more important than following someone who is zealous is to carefully inquire as to whether the view being expressed conforms what is in the written Word of God. I briefly stated last week, uh, this is what made the Bereans more noble-minded than some of the neighboring cities that had churches. When the Apostle Paul himself was later teaching them, Acts 17 verse 11 states that they received the word with great eagerness. But they were also examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And if the Apostle Paul 
was not offended by Bereans following up on his teaching, then no preacher today, including the one you're listening to right now, no preacher today should fear that either. And if Bereans were not to blindly follow even what the apostle says, neither are we to follow any pastor or teacher uh, regardless of the size of their church or the fame of their name. Everything always has to be validated with the Scriptures. Why wouldn't the Apostle Paul be offended by Christians who were out validating his teaching? Why would he be okay with that? Wouldn't he say, you know, I'm an Apostle. It's because back when he remained Saul... He once knew a godly man who was filled with wisdom and with the Holy Spirit, but he was lynched by a mob who was angry because they had lost a theological argument with him in the scriptures. And Paul could honestly profess, I am that man. I'm at least one of them, one of those men who lost that argument, and I led that mob to murder Stephen. And I did so because I did not even understand the Scriptures which I myself was teaching. Folks, we too better be very careful because Saul was deadly wrong. To confess just how wrong he was in opposing Stephen and the church. Decades later, Saul, who would then be Paul, uh, testifies at his own hearing. He's being charged with a lot of the same things that Stephen got charged with decades earlier. After converting to Christianity, now Paul stands criminally charged with a similar offense. And in Acts 22, verse 1, he states, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense which I offer to you. Paul continued, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. And he says, I persecuted this way. Way is a word used to describe early Christianity. He said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren, and I started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Wow. Saul had quite literally become the long arm of the law. He pursued Jews who had converted to Christianity as far away as Damascus. That's a Syrian city 150 miles away from Jerusalem. That is no short trek. In biblical times. And it reveals just how angry and how wrong Saul was in his theology. 
I'm not going to go a lot further today about this persecutor. Uh, We are going to learn a lot more about him in chapter 9. don't want to use up all my ammo today. Uh, And we'll learn more about him when he travels that road leading to Damascus and where the Lord Jesus is going to intervene in his life. Through a vision, Jesus will tell a disciple who is living in Damascus at that time, his name also Ananias, he's going to go to Saul. And the Lord Jesus tells Ananias, tell Saul, quote, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's the persecutor. And after the hand which he played in murdering Stephen, uh, then violently arresting both men and women. I'd imagine we have to consider it near impossible to understand the weight of those memories which the Apostle Paul carried with him throughout his entire life. He writes to Timothy, a young man in 1 Timothy chapter 1 saying that I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Later on, later goes to describe himself as the chief of sinners. He was not exaggerating. Not exaggerating. Yet Paul continues, and the grace of our Lord Jesus was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, writes Paul, I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Have you entered this morning feeling like you are carrying a heavy weight from your past? Recollections of sin burdening you? Do, do events from your, from your life weigh you down? Christ offers to carry your load. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Uh, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Folks, for some of you, it's time to unload. The reality is we've all sinned and fallen short of a holy and eternal God. We all have a sinful past. We've all earned a sentence of death well deserved. But Christ came so that we would have life and we will find it to be abundant. 
Paul said, God's Son came into the world to save sinners. He did so by taking the punishment for our sins on the cross. Died for our sins so that we don't have to die and be separated from God forever. And by the fact that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, uh, the forgiveness and the grace of our Lord Jesus is more than abundant. More than plenteous to forgive everything that you have done. Everything. You only need to turn away from your sins and repent of your past and say, I was wrong. I was wrong when I stood against the church, stood against Christians and what they believe. And then turn to Jesus Christ, who alone can save you from your sins. It is He who grants eternal life. So that that is the gospel with a little background about a, a persecutor named Saul. But what do we know for sure about those whom he persecuted? What can we learn from this passage about Christians whom Saul went after? Well, there are some pretty big things. First one states that on that day, it's referring to the same day that Stephen was killed, It just shows us that Saul was in such a rage, he wasted no time getting down to business. Didn't waste any time getting permission to go after more Christians after Stephen was stoned. Verse 1 says that on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And we must remember that Jesus had told his disciples in John 15, verse 20, remember the the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And we know how they persecuted our Lord to death. They used no restraint at the cross when he was crucified. And that Greek term persecution in in verse 1 of Acts 8, it it describes a very severe persecution. Very severe. Um, uh, Here it is called, uh, in the Greek it's megas diogmas. It means a, a great persecution. A severe. Megas is mega, right? It's big. A great persecution. Uh, it's a term that's only used ten times in the New Testament and describes some of the severest afflictions borne by believers in Christ. Twice the term is used in combination with the word tribulation or thalipsis. And twice it is used to describe persecution so severe uh, to prompt false believers to fall away and defect from the faith, or apostatize. And in that respect, it becomes persecution severe enough to distinguish true believers from false Christians. 
Both usages describe persecution severe enough to cause a separation between what is true and what is false. And the following are just a couple of examples of the usage of the word. Uh, in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul reassures believers who live in Thessalonica, uh, quote, We speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance in the faith in the midst of all of your persecutions and tribulations which you endure. So Paul uses that term for persecutions to proudly describe believers as people who faithfully persevere through severe afflictions. Twice the term is used in 2 Timothy 3 verse 10, where Paul describes his own perseverance along with that of Timothy. He states, now you followed my teaching... Conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, there's the word, severe persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me, writes Paul in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Makes you wonder, well, why am I not being persecuted? So again, Paul states the experience of Christians is to endure as we patiently await for our Lord to rescue us from them. Uh, therefore, this term uh, great, great afflictions or great persecutions um, doesn't spell the end for Christians. It's not the end of us. Yet it is for false converts. In Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 4, uh, in the parable of the soils, this, this word appears. And our Lord Jesus credits both tribulation and diogmos, which is persecutions, as causing the rocky soil with no firm root to fall away. In his explanation in Matthew 13 and verse 20, Jesus teaches, quote, uh, the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So the rocky soil apostatizes, defects from the faith. The Greek term there, falling away, is skandalizomai. Yes, scandal indicates a scandal of renouncing one's faith in Jesus Christ under persecution. In Luke 7, verse 23, Jesus says, Blessed is he who does not fall away, who does not scandalizomai, or take offense at me. And in Matthew 26, verse 33, this is before the cross, before the substitution for our sins, before the resurrection from the dead. Um, 
Before all of that, and before the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit, it is Peter who insists that I'll never do that. No way, Lord, I will ever do that. Even though all may fall away, said Peter, because of you, I will never fall away. And that's when Jesus turns to Peter and says, uh, Truly I say to you in this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. There's the scandalizomai, the scandal. I don't know the man. Three different times. Uh, Again, that stumble by Peter was before Christ's atonement, uh, before he saw Christ raised, before the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. Uh, Nonetheless, that level of humiliation that Peter uh, displayed, It shows this term falling away implies a renouncing of the name of Christ during persecution. Falling away, by the way, is uh, something that Peter refuses to do later on, ultimately like Stephen. Peter giving even his own life to preserve his Christian testimony. He would not fall away after he had seen Christ raised. And to drive home with, with emphasis that persecutions like these, the severest of persecutions uh, as seen in our passage, even great persecutions, will never cause a Christian to ultimately fall away. I'll offer this final example from Romans 8 where tribulation and persecution are again used in combination to, to undergird and assure a perseverance of the saints. Again, this is written by Paul, who, who, who had extensive experience on both sides of this. He, he was the original persecutor, and then he became the epitome of the persecuted. So he, he's got a little experience in this, and he writes in Romans 8 verse 33, "...who will bring a charge against God's elect?" God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, there's the word again, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Just as it is written, writes Paul, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Next next statement. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Overwhelmingly conquered. Through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, uh, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Can, Can a true believer apostatize and lose his or her salvation even during tribulation? even while suffering affliction? Not possible. 
Not possible. We who truly belong to Him are eternally secure in Christ Jesus. We will overwhelmingly conquer in Him. Romans 8 uh, also begins by declaring, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ himself assured, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. We will overwhelmingly conquer in Christ. And though (laughs) the church had experienced a good run, they sure had. Boy, they were sharing their possessions. They had things were going so well there for the first couple of years. Um, These Christians in our passage had also been properly warned beforehand that tribulation will eventually come. And knowing that this was all promised beforehand, it made it easier when the time came for them to surrender their homes, abandon many of their possessions, even give up their jobs in order to escape and to flee what would have been certain imprisonment for most, possible uh, execution by Saul for many as he went door to door. Remember, because of... uh, what happened with Ananias and Sapphira, uh, this church is still purely a church. These are Christians, not quite as mixed as uh, later churches would find. Uh, no unbelievers had dared to even associate with the Christians any longer. Uh, so these were saints with enormous strength. Enormous strength who were willing to part with their treasures in this world. But they would never part with Christ. Have you ever thought about how, I'm sure you have, I have. Have you ever thought about how you would respond if Saul came, not knocking at your door, but knocking down your door? Are are you willing to abandon everything you have to cling to Jesus? These people were. That's the character of the people in our passage. Folks, there's nothing wrong with Christians fleeing. At an earlier point in Matthew 10, Jesus warned his disciples, you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. So again, Jesus implies there will be no falling away. It is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, what's he say? Flee to the next. So what did these people do? They took Jesus' advice. They traveled light. When necessary, they fled. They left it all behind. But on a brighter note, these were the ones who were already out of town. 
when the Roman armies came to Jerusalem to destroy it. Think of the hidden grace through the persecution to scatter all the Christians out from Rome, or excuse me, out from Jerusalem before Rome would come. Nothing wrong with running. You know, Apostle Paul will later be let down out of a city in a basket. Not that we have some desire to go be martyrs or, or find persecution or affliction. But when it comes, the writer of Hebrews writes, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Uh, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, uh, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Enjoy what you have while you have it. I do. Thank God for it. But don't grow so attached to what you own that you would ever deny Christ. Would you be willing to leave your home? Around the world, Christians today are still being forced out of their homes. Tribulation continues in this day. Wednesday evening, I circulated a ministry update from one of our own missionaries of of whom I can no longer say this person's name on recording because this goes on the internet. Um, Can't circulate the updates any longer uh, by email um, because the safety concerns are that real. Uh, I... Missionary writes a few things here, just a few updates. The situation, uh, first off, where does it start? Oh, writes that some ministry has been interrupted because a neighboring state is experiencing violence. The situation is in part one of ethnic conflict, but hundreds of churches have also been destroyed. The situation remains serious and many of our projects are being affected. Some friends have relocated to other states for safety. Please pray for the protection of the innocent people in this state, for peace, for order to be restored, and that the violence will not spread to other states. Folks, experiences like these are being shared from Christians around the globe Uh, if people would simply listen. I think it's appropriate to talk about beforehand. Jesus promised in this world you will have tribulation. Why would we think that we're always going to escape it? A couple more examples of this in a little bit more modern context. Uh, John Calvin, he was forced to flee France. King Francis there was murdering Christians, so Calvin fled the country to do his work out of Geneva. John Knox 
had to flee England. Have you ever heard of Bloody Mary? Queen Mary I? She executed over 300 pastors. John Knox fled. He he, uh, met up in Geneva with John Calvin uh, until Queen Mary died and things became uh, acceptable where he could move back uh, to Scotland. How about the Puritans? We call them pilgrims, right? The pilgrims were looking for a place where they could worship safely, so they had to flee England. Where did they go? Uh, Well, they stopped in Holland. They started to settle down in Holland, and then they faced another threat there. They found that their children uh, were being secularized by the surrounding culture. And they go, we can't let that happen. we got to move on again. So persecution eventually uh, drove them to get on the, on the ship and come across and, and settle here, taking their risks, looking for a place they could worship freely. Why aren't we thankful for our country? Um, lots of examples. Lots of examples. I, I don't personally don't care for theology that uh, tries to assure all Americans that you'll never have to face any tribulation. Can't happen to you. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that faithfully aligns with what the Word of God says. Um, sometimes I do wonder why we aren't experiencing it yet. Praise God. Uh, I will talk about why the apostles stayed in in a future passage. They remained. um, However, a closing note concerning some devout men who buried Stephen and made a loud lamentation over him, uh, that implies they were men of great courage. They expressed no fear, displayed no fear of expressing their lament and identifying with this Stephen. As Saul was going around uh, continuing this persecution, uh, they said, oh, we'll cry out and we will lament over Stephen. They're men of intense courage, uh, wailing loudly as Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. Uh, He would put them in prison. A note for the church. A note for Christians, true Christians in the church. When tribulation arrives at our door, when it comes to our doorstep, uh, we will leave everything, if needed, behind. We will endure to the end, and we will be saved. Let's pray. Father, in, uh, in an expression of thanksgiving and adoration for the, the security and the peace and the abundance that you've provided to us, Father, we, we, we don't even know how to be grateful for all that we've experienced, all the goodness and love and mercy that you've shown us and our families in this country Um, we're eternally grateful. And uh, we pray 
We continue to pray that uh, you will preserve it, that uh, you will let us live a, a peaceful and tranquil life with all godliness and dignity. That is a righteous prayer from Scripture to want to have peace. And so we, that is our request in this day. Uh, and in that, in that vein, we pray for our leaders. We pray for uh, our president, our senators, our representatives, uh, local leaders, uh, that they too would come to know Christ, that there would be a moving of your spirit uh, so powerful that it would leave us in complete awe. And Father, if you'd be so good, uh, we would ask that you not do it simply to spare us from a little bit of trouble, but that you'd do it for the glory of your beloved Son. That many would be saved, many would rise up in this country, worshiping the holy name of Jesus, giving their lives to live uh, in honor and, uh, and glory uh, in his name for the rest of our lives and for our children, the lives that are to come, Lord, we, we ask this prayer. Yet uh, at the same time, if there ever were to be a persecution so great that uh, we had to uh, leave everything we have here behind, Father, that's okay too. For we have a salvation, a forgiveness of sins, an eternal security in Christ that is so much more precious than anything we could possibly own. Father, thank you for that gift. Thank you for giving it to us. If there's any heart here who's been hardened, we pray together as a church that you would soften it and open that heart to receive the forgiveness that is available through your Son, Lord. Do your work through your power and do it for the glory of your precious Son. It's in his exalted and holy name we pray.